1: Star of reality TV shows like Thick Twats doing Nout, Minor Celebrities falling over shitloads on ice, and fanning about on an island getting the clap. Where I dick about, act thick, drip up, and cram into every episode my catchphrase. I'm now there am I? <laughs> As a major UK based late night channel 5 Minor Celebrity, I'm well fed up with waiting for my Nike sponsorship. I don't know why they're dissing me, I've got dead good feet I have, all three of them. So while I wait to see if I'm the new face of Frey Bentos Pies, the voice of Poundland, and the gut of Greg's the Bakers, my agent, well, me mum and Auntie Barbara, have got me doing an advert for a podcast. I know, wow, I'm in the big leagues. So here goes. <laughs> Listen, yeah, to the of Milk. Murder Mile. Murder Mile? Murder Mile. Murder Mike? Murder Mile True Quine Podcast. Yeah, that it's like well, dead good, and you know things. Uh, that was perfect. So now for me, catchphrase? I'm not all there, am I? <laughs> <sighs> I'll
2: do it myself. So if you fancy giving a loved one a shout out,
1: yeah, that's what I said.
2: On the Murder Mile True Crime podcast,
1: yeah, and that
2: as a gift on their special day. That's what I said. Simply go to the Murder Mile merch shop
1: or click on the link in the show notes. So do I get my knob out or not? No. What do you mean, no? It's what I'm famous for. Auntie Barber, the bald man won't let me get my knob out.
2: Thankfully, there's only a few more weeks until the Murder Mile multi-part series slops into your bunts. But before that, there's this. (laughs) Friends, welcome to Mini Mile your indispensable compendium of UK true crime trivia. This week we'll ask What are the favourite nibbles of serial killers? What happens during decomposition? Is there a difference between strangling, garroting and throttling? We dip into the deadliest poisons. I'll read you a letter and a poem from two serial killers. And we ask who are the Soho Angels? And with only four weeks until the brand new Murder Mile multi-part series, here's this week's episode of Minimile. Right, let's kick things off with a little, how do you do, by learning more about some infamous murderers and serial killers on a more social level. This week, food. What do convicted killers enjoy eating when they're not gnawing on dismembered limbs or nibbling on hacked off haunches? You may think, why do we need to know this? But food, like everything else in life, is something that, unless we're literally hours away from starving, we deliberately choose a meal which we not only enjoy the look, taste and smell of, but it comforts us by reminding us of happier times and it gives other people an insight into how we see ourselves, and more importantly, how we want other people to see us. For example, Fred West, the Cromwell Street murderer. He was a very plain and unimaginative eater, raised on a simple country diet of meat and vegetables for most dinners, and would always reject anything with a hint of spice, right into his adulthood, often referring to curry as muck. Myra Hindley, the Moors murderer, very little is known about Hindley's favourite foods prior to meeting Ian Brady, but her mother always insisted that she had a side portion of chips with every meal, as Hindley was a notoriously picky eater, perhaps brought on by being bullied over what she considered to be her wide hips, with kids giving her the nickname of square-arse. Having met Brady, her taste copied his, and they'd often dine on either French or Chinese food. During her incarceration at Holloway Prison, Hindley paid, in cigarettes, a Jamaican prisoner to cook her a traditional West Indian meal at least once a week. Ian Brady, Myra Hindley's partner, in his earlier years he had simple tastes, fish and chips in a trucker's calf, black pudding and chips after a few drinks, with steak being a specific treat. But as his reading habits evolved, so did his desire to appear more cultured. So often he'd eat French, German or Oriental cuisine, with Chinese food in 1960s Manchester still being seen as new and exciting. After his incarceration, his diet was limited according to what Ashworth Psychiatric Prison would provide. But whilst on self-imposed hunger strike, Brady would sneakily eat toast with butter and packet soup made with boiling water. Harold Shipman, Dr. Death Although not a particularly fussy eater, Shipman ate a very normal diet consisting of Weetabix for breakfast, sandwiches and fruit for lunch, and with his evening meal, he would often have four slices of brown bread, as he strongly believed that food should be very carbohydrate-orientated. And as Primrose, his wife, was a good cook, he enjoyed her beef wellington and was a fan of her curries, all of which he consumed with the vegetables he grew in his back garden. Dennis Nielsen, the kindly killer, who treated many homeless boys to one last meal, usually pork chops or an omelet, before he shagged and slaughtered them. And having trained as an army chef in the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers and served as a cook at the Al-Mazor prison in Aden, South Yemen, it was here, according to his colleagues at the job center, that he learned to make a mean curry. That said, although he ate well, his taste remained uncomplicated, unlike his love life. And also, Levi Belfield, the bus stop killer, who was convicted of killing schoolgirl Millie Dowler, he went through phases of being fat and lean, so when he wasn't working out, he gorged himself on junk food, especially his favourite, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Jeremy Bamber, the White House farm murderer, who brutally murdered his adoptive family. He liked nothing more than a bacon sandwich and a coffee. And Ian Huntley, the much-hated Soam murderer who murdered schoolgirls Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. He was a man of simple tastes, he hated spicy food, and preferred to live on a diet of chips and chocolate. And for our overseas listeners, here's a few for you. Ed Gein, the Wisconsin grave robber, murderer and necrophile. He wasn't much of a cook, as being a single man who lived alone with his dead mother. His farmstead had no electricity or running water. His cupboards contained little more than the basics of canned goods, oatmeal and bread, with his main source of nutrition being potatoes and the rabbits he hunted. Of those American serial killers who were executed on death row, when asked what their final meal would be, as they could literally order anything, within reason. This is what they ordered. Eileen Warnos had a simple cup of black coffee. John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, ordered 12 deep-fried shrimp, a big bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken as he used to run a KFC, with French fries and a pound of strawberries. Ted Bundy denied his final meal, so was given a standard dinner of a medium-rare steak over easy eggs hash browns, toast, milk, coffee, juice and a bowl of jelly, none of which he ate. Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma bomber, his final meal was two tubs of chocolate and mint ice cream. Velma Barfield ate a bag of cheese doodles and a can of Coca-Cola. Teresa Lewis ate two fried chicken breasts, buttered beans, chocolate cake and a can of Dr. Pepper, which ironically for someone on death row, has the slogan... What's the worst that can happen? And Ronnie Threadgill, he requested a baked chicken, mashed potato with gravy, vegetables, sweet peas, bread, tea, water and punch. But this simple request was denied. Why? Because when Lawrence Russell Brewer ordered his final death row meal, he asked for two chicken fried steaks smothered in gravy with sliced onions, a triple meat bacon cheeseburger, a cheese omelette, a large bowl of fried okra, one pound of barbecued meat with half a loaf of white bread, three fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, three root beers, one pint of vanilla ice cream and a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts. His final meal request was granted, but when it arrived, he refused to eat the meal. Since that day, the Texas penal system has denied all special requests for final meals on death row. And as for military maniacs, dictators and despots? Many people may mock Adolf Hitler for being a vegetarian, but he didn't decide not to eat animals on moral grounds. Instead, he believed that a meat-free diet could cure him of his chronic flatulence, which plagued him since he was a boy. Hence, he was always trying out new herbal remedies, which his famously quackish doctor, Theodore Morel, tried to cure him of, once using extract of Bulgarian peasants' faeces. Nice. Being notoriously paranoid, Hitler had a 15-strong team of female food tasters on hand at all times, and only after they had survived a full 45 minutes of tasting after his meal would he allow any food to be served. Oddly, many serial killers and mass murderers also suffer with stomach troubles. Idi Amin, Uganda's infamous dictator, he adored a simple goat stew. But his life was shrouded in a cloud of cannibalism after he was quoted as saying, I don't like human flesh, it is too salty, and was cited by the cook who supposedly prepared him a human cadaver, which was supposedly stuffed with rice and flambéed in gin. But then Idi Amin was an odd man. It is reported that he was so obsessed with Her Majesty the Queen, and why wouldn't you be, that he once sent her a letter asking for a pair of her knickers. Hot. Nicolae Ceausescu, whilst being hosted by other leaders, the former Romanian dictator would only drink raw vegetable juice through a straw, and he avoided all solids. But whilst relaxing at home, he loved nothing more than a simple chicken stew made with chicken breast, beak, feet, the whole lot. Ceausescu was notoriously paranoid and travelled with a chemist and a fully functioning food testing laboratory everywhere he went. Benito Mussolini. Coming from peasant stock, the Italian dictator loved nothing more than a big bowl of raw chopped garlic. So much so that his wife couldn't sleep next to him after he'd eaten his favourite meal as the aroma was so overpowering. During World War II, a Nazi doctor examined Mussolini and declared that he was dangerously constipated, meaning that his bowel movements were about as likely to move forward as his tanks. Whee! I made a little joke about the Italian army! Yay! 70 years too late. And finally, Colonel Gaddafi, He was a big fan of couscous and camel meat. Just like Hitler, Gaddafi was infamously flatulent, as recounted by BBC journalist John Simpson, who said, I listened to the recording of the interview. There was absolutely no doubt about it. The personal microphone which we had pinned onto Gaddafi had picked it up very clearly. The passage of wind lasted for about ten minutes of our half-an-hour interview. Gaddafi would rise up a little in his seat, The thunder would roll for about 15 to 20 seconds at a time, and then he would sink back down into his seat with a pleased expression on his face. And there you go. That was everything you need to know about maniacs, dictators, their food, and their bot-bot fluffy woof-woofs. You're welcome. (whistles) And now, it's time to get technical. Let's get technical. Technical, yeah, ooh, baby. Oh, let's get technical on the telephone. Yeah, 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 baby, take your pants off. Yes, folks, that was my R&B version of Olivia Newton's famous song. I hope you liked it. So let's get technical by binning the dribbly bum-squits of those CSI-style crime shows and ask exactly how does it work? This week, Decomposition. What happens when a human body decomposes? Basically, we are nothing but sacks of meat, blood, bone and water. And excluding any man-made parts such as false teeth, new hips and fake tits, the human body is entirely recyclable. We are a biological miracle. And unlike in our daily lives, our body is the only part of us which doesn't pollute or contaminate our world once we're gone, thanks to decomposition. So, what is decomposition? Before we begin, if you're eating, stop. Right now. Say ta-ta to that Bakewell tart, otherwise you're about to say howdy to last night's hummus. You have been warned. Decomposition is the natural process in which, in this case, a human body is broken down into its core chemical components as part of nature's biological cycle. Once a human body has died and brain death has occurred, as a human body can no longer biologically support itself, decomposition begins within roughly four minutes and follows four stages, autolysis, bloating, active decay and skeletonization. Stage 1, autolysis, also known as self-digestion. Nice. This is when the circulation of our blood and oxygen ceases, and being unable to expel any toxins or waste, an excess of carbon dioxide builds up, causing our internal organs to become highly acidic. And as the cell membranes split, they release enzymes which digest our body from the inside out. I told you to put down that tart, didn't I? Stage 2. Bloating. As our internal organs are devoured by enzymes, a sulfurous bacteria leaks from our intestinal tract and begins a process of causing the body to effectively melt down, which is called putrefraction. Within 36 hours, the neck, head, shoulders and stomach turn green and discoloured. Then, as bacterial gases rapidly increase... The face and eyes start to protrude as the face bloats, and the body swells to almost double its size. Next, as the hair falls out, fingernails recede and the skin blisters and marbles, the body finally turns a blackish-green as it reaches stage 3, active decay. At this point, the body will begin to drain itself of what is known as purge fluid, the liquefied waste of our own innards which will seep from our mouth, nose, anus or any orifice as organs, muscles and skin begin to liquefy in a process known as liquefaction. As most of the body's soft organs and flesh are digested, hair, bones and cartilage remain. Part of this active decay comes from flies and larvae who enter the body through exposed orifices and open wounds and each fly can lay an average of 250 eggs which hatch into maggots within a day. And finally, stage four, skeletonization. This is the slowest part of decomposition, as with the body having melted down into liquid form, which seeps into the ground, with nothing else for the enzymes to feed on, our skeletons are reduced to dry husks of calcium and enamel. And as the decomposition slows, the only factor of what speed our body decays is the environment itself. Mmm, nice. Suddenly necrophilia seems like a viable dating option. Am I right? Am I right? Skin slippage, liquefaction, putrefaction. What's not to like? Dennis Nielsen was right. There are some absolute hotties who are single and available, and they're right underneath my feet. Hot. So... Not that I'm over-eager to take my new deceased date to Nando's, to wine her, to dine her, and then get her home for a little romantic kiss before she's completely dissolved. We need to ask, how long does it take for a human body to fully decompose? This is the timeline after death. One to three days, the internal organs begin to decompose. Three to five days, the body bloats and the purge fluid leaks. Eight to ten days, the body turns from green to red to black as the internal organs liquefy. After several weeks, the nails and the teeth fall out. And after one month, the body starts to liquefy and the process of skeletonization begins. Of course, the rate of decomposition entirely depends on factors such as clothing, body mass, burial site, weather, temperature, drugs, alcohol, illness, moisture, the acidity of the soil and the wildlife and insect population, to name but a few. But if left alone, in summer, a human body in a temperate and exposed location can be reduced to bones in just nine days. Note to self, at Nando's, I must remember to seat sweet-seeping Susan near an open window, preferably by an insect zapper, and not too near the grill. And finally... Ah, the end is in sight, you'll be pleased to know, as you stare at that Bakewell tart, wishing you'd scoffed it before you'd started the podcast. Finally, let's ask the question, which parts of the human body decompose the slowest? So, you'll probably say, the bones. Maybe the teeth, too, as calcium and enamel are incredibly tough and durable substances, right? You'd be right. They're one of the last body parts to decompose and for forensics teams this is invaluable for aging and sexing no not that way this is invaluable for aging and sexing a corpse as the pelvis the skull the thigh bones and especially the jaw bone which is incredibly dense these are usually one of the final body parts to decompose but they're not the last the last part of the human body to fully decompose is the prostate in men and the uterus in women, and accompanied by a thigh bone, a skull, and a pelvis, these are one of the key factors in a pathologist accurately determine the age and sex of a corpse, even at the very last stages of decomposition. Hmm, a second note to self. Have a peek at her crotch and double-check that sweet-seeping Susan is a Susan and not a Steve. Order, order. The not very honourable, except in the presence of a lady, Judge Michael presides, and assures you that he has never taken a corpse to Nando's on a date. It was McDonald's. And here he states to you, In a voice which sounds like Sylvester Stallone is having trouble starting his moped as I give you a quick overview of true crime legal lingo. Silence in court. This week, strangulation. What is the difference between strangulation, choking, garrotting and throttling? Often these words are used in a very interchangeable way, but they are very different and they mean very different things. So it's worth understanding the difference. Strangulation is the overall umbrella term. It's the accidental or deliberate compression of the neck which interferes with the normal flow of oxygen or blood to the brain. Strangulation is broken down into two categories manual strangulation and ligature strangulation. Manual strangulation, also known as throttling, is when a person is strangled using bare hands and or fingers, but they can also be strangled by the use of other body parts including the arms, legs, feet and other parts of the torso, as well as blunt objects such as a police baton. Manual strangulation usually occurs with the perpetrator and the victim being face-to-face, but it can also occur when the victim is manually strangled from behind. This is known as yoking. Ligature strangulation. This is also known as garrotting. This is when a person is strangled using some form of cord, whether a rope, belt, wire or stocking which is partially or fully wrapped around the neck to induce hypoxia and asphyxia. Typically, unconsciousness occurs within 10-15 to 15 seconds. And although the term choking is often used in place of strangulation, as medically its effects and outcome are very similar, choking, or being choked, is when the airflow in the trachea is internally blocked by food or a foreign object, and not by a compression of the neck. Well, that was cheery, wasn't it? And if you ever see a man being strangled with a rope and he's frantically shouting, Help! Help! I'm being choked to death! Rush up to him and say, Actually, I think you'll find that as you're not currently eating, you can't be choking. The correct term is garroted, which is a Spanish term, don't you know? And I'm sure he'll be really pleased. Right, now. I've run out of cake. I know. Is it even possible? Well, it is possible that the world can run out of cake. But as I am a piggy, yes, that is possible too. So, before I die of hunger, in order to refloat my cake fund, I need to play you a really annoying advert... Hang on. Hiya, Acast here. Hi Acast, it's Mike here. Uh, That's Mike. Not Mark. Mike. Yeah, no Mark. You think I don't know? Never mind. Uh, ACAST, answer me this. Is there going to be an advert this week? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Are you sure? Oh, yeah, defo. So there will definitely be an advert and not an odd gap in the podcast. Oh, yeah. Right. Here's the advert.
3: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Acast, was there an advert just then? You know, Mark, I don't know. I was a bit busy, you know. Sandra's made some well-lush cupcakes in the shape of Bobby Devereaux. I got a high score on Jenga. And because we've been playing so many adverts on all the other podcasts like, the boss is taking us on an away day to the Mr Kipling Cake Factory. It's going to be well banging. Anyway, I've got to go, Mark. Thanks for calling. Bye! (sighs) And now, on with the show. Hello. My name is Jet the Ripper. And I am a serial killer. Not a lot of people know that. Michael, what is the best way to kill someone? Ah, oh, Mr. Ripper, well, as you've asked so nicely, let me consult The Murderer's Handbook. Murderous Handbook. <laughs> this week in The Murderer's Handbook, we look into poisons. Which are the deadliest? Here is my top list. Aconite, which derives from the plant Monkshood, also known as Wolfsbane, is almost untraceable during a post-mortem, as having absorbed the poison by merely touching the leaves with your bare hands, it quickly causes rapid heart arrhythmia, asphyxiation, and finally suffocation. And although beautiful, small doses cause a slow, painful death over 2-6 to six hours, with large doses causing death instantly. Arsenic Arsenic is a common metal that in trace elements is vital to most mammals' diets. Up until the 1950s, arsenic was used in wallpapers, paints and cosmetics, but was phased out as long exposure caused jaundice and skin rashes. White arsenic is virtually undetectable in hot food and drink, with high doses resulting in a slow and painful death, including vomiting, diarrhea and internal bleeding, usually within a few hours. Antimony. Antimony, like arsenic, is a common metal, which causes sweating, vomiting and cardiac arrest just 30 minutes after ingestion. But it is easy for the victim to spot, owing to it having a very acrid metallic taste. And just like arsenic, it can be detected during an autopsy as it irritates the lining of the alimentary tract. Botulism toxin. Commonly abbreviated to Botox, is a muscle paralytic which, although used to cure excessive sweating, migraines, and to alleviate wrinkles, it can lead to botulism, a fatal condition causing paralysis of the lungs, liver, and heart. Botox is the most poisonous substance known to man, and it is estimated that a single teaspoon of botulism toxin is enough to kill over a billion people. Botrachotoxin is a neurotoxin extracted from the skin of the thumb-sized golden dart frog, as used on the tips of hunting darts of Amazonian Indians. Although the poison produced by the frog is the equivalent of just two grains of sand, that is enough venom to kill ten people. And as a paralytic and a cardiotoxin, it causes death within minutes, and there is no known antidote. Belladonna Belladonna is a plant commonly known as deadly nightshade, which was used in the 18th and 19th century as a pain reliever, a muscle relaxant and a cosmetic, as it would cause the cheeks to blush and the pupils of the eyes to dilate, which is a sign of sexual attraction. That said, if digested, a single leaf is lethal. Belladonna is translated from the Italian words for beautiful woman. But then again, Surely, everything in Italian translates as beautiful woman. Hey, pretty lady, hey! (laughs) Cyanide. Cyanide is a chemical compound commonly found in a wide variety of fruits, such as apple pips, almond, and apricot stones, as well as tobacco. And even when ingested, usually it is safely excreted via the urine in small doses. For humans, one5 milligrams per kilo of body weight is a lethal dose, with death occurring in minutes. Cyanide is recognizable by its bitter almond smell and primarily causes the body to stop producing its own energy, with further symptoms including hyperventilation, dizziness, nausea, headaches, convulsions and finally death. Cyanide is the active ingredient in Zyklon B, the gas used in the Nazi extermination camps. Dimethyl mercury. Dimethyl mercury is a colourless liquid which is one of the world's strongest known neurotoxins, whose symptoms don't become apparent until months after exposure, with lethal doses being as little as just 0.1 millilitres. On the 14th of August 1996, chemist Karen Vetterhan spilled a few drops onto her latex gloved hand and promptly took the necessary precautions but it wasn't until April 1997, the next year, that the symptoms occurred, including loss of balance and slurred speech, later developing into a resistance to pain and leaving her in a vegetative state. She died just 10 months later. Hemlock, a plant indigenous to Europe and North Africa, and has been used as a deadly poison since 400 BC, as it disrupts the central nervous system and slows the rate at which oxygen can reach the heart, brain, and all other vital organs. Just 0.1 milligrams of hemlock can be fatal. Polonium Polonium is a radioactive poison which causes a slow and complete breakdown of the internal organs and has no known cure. It was used to kill former Russian spy Alexander Litvinenko, as seen in episode 20, Whose cup of tea was spiked with a dose 200 times higher than that which is fatal, and a single grain of polonium 210 could kill 10 million people and is 250,000 times more potent than hydrogen cyanide. Mercury. Mercury is a metal which is used in car batteries, thermometers, and as with Mozart, was a cure for syphilis. And although harmless if touched, it can be lethal if inhaled or ingested. Symptoms include rashes, muscle weakness, memory loss, numbness and issues with sight, hearing and speech. With the latter stages of the poisoning resulting in excessive sweating, rapid heart rate, hypertension and death. Sulfur mustard is a cryptotoxin chemical warfare agent, meaning it attacks at a cellular level. Sulfur mustard was used in the World War I trenches and is more often known as mustard gas, owing to the yellow-brown colour of the gas and its garlic smell. Although fatal in less than 1% of cases, mustard gas causes burns and blistering of the skin, eyes and lungs, which can lead to suffocation, but most of the victims die from secondary infections caused by the burns, and, if they survive long enough, cancer. Ricin Ricin derives from the castor oil bean and is so poisonous that even a few grains could kill an adult human being. Ricin is also a cytotoxic and prevents the body from synthesizing protein, which leads to the failure of all vital organs. Although quick acting, the victim can often die within a week to 10 days, but the symptoms don't occur for at least 24 to 48 hours. Strychnine Strychnine is a crystalline alkaloid previously used in pesticides which, if ingested, causes paralysis, asphyxiation and violent muscle contractions. So powerful are these contractions that the victim's body appears to jackknife onto itself, with death occurring within 2-3 to three hours. Although still used in rat poison, drug dealers have been known to use it as an added ingredient to alleviate some of heroin's less favorable symptoms. Sarin, a colorless, odorless nerve agent developed during World War II. It's an organophosphate which is 26 times more deadly than cyanide, which shuts down the body's nerve endings, resulting in asphyxiation, the total loss of all muscle control including bowel, stomach, and bladder, coma, and eventually death within an hour. And finally, VX. VX is a nerve agent. Manufactured by the UK, hey, well done us. It's a tasteless and odourless liquid, which is more potent than sarin, and causes instant respiratory failure, paralysis, and was designed to kill as many people as possible. It was outlawed by the Chemical Weapons Convention in 1993. The UK, Russia and the USA have since destroyed their stockpiles of this weapon, and yet it was recently used in the killing of Kim Jong-nam, the brother of North Korea's Kim Jong-un. So, Mr Ripper, was that useful? Thank you, Michael. I will use it to kill some prostitutes. Prostitutes. Thousands of them. Where would you see the whites of their eyes, lads? Not a lot of people know that. You're welcome. So, what's that plopping through my door? Is it a free plastic bag from a charity, asking if I've got any clothes to donate? And I do, but the bag they've given would rip if I breathed on it, and is barely big enough to hold a child's sock, which had shrunk in a hot wash. Very possibly. Is it a love letter from Eva Green, telling me that she loves me, she wants me, she can't live without me, and is desperate to make some sexy whoopee boom boom with me? Again? Almost certainly. But is it? No. So what is it? It's... THE DEAD LETTER DROP! Now, usually, each week I would read you a rather mundane letter written by a British serial killer. But this week, I won't. Oh. No. This week, we have two letters. Ooh. One a correspondence and one a poem, ooh, very arty, from two different murderers, both from the U.S. of A. USA! 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 Before we begin, a little background. Ted Kaczynski, known as the Unabomber, was an anarchist, maths professor and an American domestic terrorist who killed three people, an injured 23 in a bombing campaign between 1978 and 1995 fueled by his anger at industrialization whilst he lived as a recluse in a remote cabin near Lincoln in Montana this is a very short letter dated the 11th of March 2006 it was sent by ted from his cell at the supermax prison in florence colorado to an unnamed recipient as i have no idea what ted's voice sounds like I've decided to make him a Brummie. Enjoy. Thanks for your letter dated the 1st of the 9th, 06. I would love to correspond with you, but I just can't. It's impossible. Even by writing a letter to this man, Ted's showing that it's clearly not impossible. I just don't have the time, as there's so many people who want to correspond with me. There are only 24 hours in the day. And I have to spend some time eating, sleeping, exercising and dealing with the various problems that come up. Like, oh, I don't know, how to fill the other 23 hours a day he's stuck inside his cell with nothing to do. The best I can offer you is the opportunity to correspond with some people who may share your ideas and values. Also known as nutjobs, dickheads and fuckwits. Try contacting them." He gives the recipient two names and addresses. One for a Tor Jacobson in Sweden and one for a Jerry Smith in Texas and then he signs off. If you do establish contact with these people, let me know how it goes. With best wishes, Ted Kaczynski Therefore, asking this person to correspond with him, which is what Ted says he didn't want in the first place. Make it be a frickin' mine, Ted! And secondly, is a rather lovely poem called Love. ah, oh. Written in 1998 by the serial killer Arthur Shawcross. Who it was sent to, we don't actually know. As background, Arthur Shawcross, also known as the Genesee River Killer, was an American serial killer who initially served 14 years for the brutal murder of a young boy and girl, but whilst prowling the streets looking for sex workers to abduct, he would murder a further eleven women whilst on parole. And this is his poem called Love, which I shall perform in a crappy generic Welsh accent. Let me tell you about love. Love is patient and long-enduring. It is kind, never envying, never ambitious for itself, never putting on airs or displaying itself haughtily. It boasts not. Never vain nor arrogant. Never puffed up with pride. Love behaves in a seemly manner. Never rude or becoming. Love seeks not its own reward. Nor makes demands. But gives itself withal. Love bears all things. Hopes all things. Believes the best in all things. Love never fails. And its strength never fails. Every gift of the giving... God will come to. And so, three things abide forever faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Oh, Arthur, that was so lovely, so heartfelt, and yet so mercifully short. You clearly missed your vocation as a writer of complete and utter drivel. Hello? Oh, hi. Is that Mills and Boone, the publishers of Polite Porn for Old Ladies? It is? Great. Warm up your printer. I think we've hit the motherload. And finally, folks, before I toddle off to Betty Buys and get all warm and cosy with my gorgeous girlfriend, Eva Green, <sighs> here's the latest instalment of Quickie News. Last Christmas, the streets of Soho were made a little bit better, brighter, less smellier, which is not difficult, and a little less puke-lined, which is always a welcome treat, especially for those who've been on my murder mile walk on a Sunday morning, only to spend two hours dodging last night's steamy gut chunder. As a fantastic initiative by Westminster Council, BOO 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 and the charity LGBT Foundation to make Soho a safer space for people partying over the festive period. They organised for eight truly lovely, specially trained volunteers dubbed the Soho Angels, and six St John's ambulance workers to hand out bottles of water, sick bags, and to offer medical assistance for those who needed it, so any vulnerable drunks wouldn't become victims of crime. One person they helped was Steve, a 50-year-old office worker from Kent, who was found slumped on the pavement with his laptop bag and personal belongings covered in his own vomit. Ah, nice. Steve was brought back to St Anne's Church. He spent five hours sobering up and was escorted back to the train station. Steve said, I don't know what I would have done without your help. It brings tears to my eyes that there are so many good people in the world. They also came across an extremely drunk and unresponsive man from Australia. I know. Shock. Ironically, this initiative was sponsored by Smirnoff Vodka. And now you know. So, my beloved friends, that was your weekly dose of Mini Mile. I hope it was arousing, absorbing, soft, calorie-free and not flammable near a naked flame. And it was an interesting companion... your regular murder mile don't forget the new exciting murder mile multi-part series is coming in may and next week there will be even more mini mile if you have any comments original questions or unusual topics you'd love me to research and discuss let me know contact me via email my website or social media a big thank you this week goes out to my new patreon supporters who are lisa west mj horden And thank you to Laura daughter for increasing her monthly subscription. As well as a thank you to all new and old listeners, anyone who's reviewed the podcast, and anyone who's gone, hey, you should really listen to this, it's amazing slash good slash adequate slash shit. Delete as appropriate. And if you fancy supporting Police Constable Arsenal Guinness, yes, the real one, who is running this year's London Marathon in aid of the Samaritans, a fantastic charity who are a much-needed lifeline to those in crisis. You can support Police Constable Arsenal Guinness by clicking on the link in the show notes. Murderball will be back next week, but before that, here's my recommended podcast of the week. Love to you all. Tati-bye!
1: Hong Kong Confidential is a podcast designed to educate and entertain my audience. It's an interview-style show where many topical social issues are discussed and personal stories are shared. The podcast can be inspiring, confronting, harrowing and, at times, hilarious. We all need to be heard to heal and listening to the experiences of others can often help the rest of us deal with what life has to throw at us. Hong Kong Confidential, available on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube and Google Play.
4: From the brilliant creative minds that brought you Keep Drinking, It'll Get Better, and the Real Housewives of Hillcrest Nursing Home, comes the podcast that people are raving about. Hi, this is Edward October for OctoberPodVHS.com, here to tell you what people are saying about our true crime podcast. A thread store in Arizona says, too much dribble and slang. These ladies obviously enjoy their own humor and sound high hey at least they called you ladies benny from idaho says your topics are so appealing but a three-person pod is difficult enough to follow without banter um our true crime podcast only has two people wait 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 wait. where's the other 100 five-star reviews can somebody give me the five-star reviews okay here we go much better luscious lee says stand up five stars you girls are funny af i especially love the me and mrs jones rendition you sneak into the recording cherry g 107 says i struggle finding a new podcast and so far i've been hooked to you guys podcasts keep up the good work thumbs up thumbs up smiley face our true crime podcast two girls one story and lots of bad renditions of songs you love available on your favorite podcatcher go binge it today
3: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time